I'm just so grateful to be a part of what God is doing here at Harbor to be with you this morning as we are continuing our series that we've been in the past few weeks um, called In Rhythm, talking about the condition of our heart. And the fact that so often when we're facing challenges in life or we're coming up against problems, a lot of times we will attack the issue or we'll assess the problem from an external view. We'll we'll say, what can I see? What can I identify? What is tangible? But so often there usually is an issue that's going deeper and it's an issue that goes back to our heart. And so the series has been so wonderfully challenging because I think we can get in a place where we assume like my heart is good. You know, I, I'm not where I was. I can remember a season where my heart was in a lot of trouble. It was going through a lot of stuff. And so I'm fine. And yet when we really start evaluating and we really start giving our heart to the Lord, I think he begins to uncover layers that maybe we didn't know still need work. Layers that still need to be given to his hand and the more that we continue to surrender our heart to the Lord, the more work there is to become like his son, Jesus. And so there's always a process to be done in our heart. And it's interesting because when you study scripture, the heart is referenced over 500 times. And with that, there's really no question as to the significance of evaluating the state of our heart. And yet so often we can overlook or just get in this place where we're not really examining what's going on on the inside, what's going on at a heart level, what's the condition and state of my heart. And yet scripture has a lot to say about the heart. Proverbs says, above all else, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Matthew says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. I, the Lord, search the heart. Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take your old stony heart and give you a heart that is tender and responsive. The reality is that if our heart is not continually given to the Father, we begin to live out of these fractured places of our heart. We begin to look um, and live from these overlooked places of our heart that ultimately are detrimental to our lives if we haven't evaluated the heart. If we haven't said what's really going on on the inside, what's really happening when everything calms down and and there's no distractions, what's really going on in my heart? And so we have this great call to tend to our heart, to take care, to, to watch after, to guard our heart. And there is a result of either submitting our heart to the Father to mend and to mold and to shape or ignoring the state of our heart. It seems that in scripture, there's perhaps no greater example of this than in the life of King David and King Saul. Just to give context, after Israel was rescued from slavery in Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai and they make a covenant with God about how they're supposed to live, how, how if they live by these commands that he will bring them life, that there will be joy, that there will be abundance, that there will be provision. He says, here's what the state of your heart should look like. 
And eventually they come to the promised land and there Israel is supposed to be faithful to the covenant they just established to the, the laws and, and the regulation that their heart, that they were supposed to live by. They come into the promised land and before they know it, it's a period of moral chaos. They're in disarray. They, they can't remember what God has directed them about their heart and they're lacking wise, faithful leaders. And so after some time through a series of events by the guiding of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Samuel anoints Saul to be their king. He anoints Saul to be their king. And we quickly find out that Saul has an inability to regard the ways of God. He's dishonest. He lacks integrity. He seems incapable of acknowledging his mistakes. He is not the leader that will lead their hearts but rather his heart is just as wicked. His heart is just as torn. His heart is just as unsure of the ways of God. And so, sure, he wins some battles in the beginning. He he has a sense of direction in the beginning. He has courage. He's got leadership, but his heart is unyielding to the ways of God. His heart issues run so deep that he eventually disqualifies himself. Reading in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13, After Saul has completely disregarded the commands of God, we read of this devastating moment. Samuel says, Samuel being the prophet at that time, he says, How foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom must end. Now your kingdom must end for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And I remember reading this a few months back and just being unable to move forward because it's such a devastating moment that we see that comes out of disobedience. Samuel says, hey, here's the Lord's kindness. Here's the Lord's goodness. Here's the Lord's intention for your life that he would establish your kingdom forever, but he can no longer do that because you are unwilling to yield to the direction of God. Had you kept his command, had you been obedient, had you followed God's way, but now your kingdom must end. And what a like a shattering moment, right? That he's saying, this is what God had for your life. This is what God wanted to do through your willingness and through your accessibility, but he can no longer do it through you because your heart wasn't yielded to me because you wouldn't address the issues of your heart. And since Saul is no longer in this position to lead because of his disobedience, God has chosen another. And so we see, you know, what does the Lord require? What is he seeking after? What is he searching for? And Samuel says this, the Lord has sought out a man after his heart. The Lord has sought a man after his heart. He doesn't say he saw a man with more title. He saw a man with more ability. He saw a man with greater leadership. He said he sought after a man with his heart, just with his heart. And it wasn't just the external issues or a few decisions that Saul makes, but it goes down to the deeper issues of his heart. 
And Samuel says, hey, the only thing God is looking for is that whoever's gonna lead his people is after his heart, is after his guiding, is after his leading. He says, the Lord has sought a man after his heart. It's so vitally important, the heart that he listed as the singular thing that he has sought after. The singular thing that God was seeking after to lead his chosen people, the nation of Israel, was that he would have a heart after his own. And the truth is that the posture of our heart determines the precedence of our life. The the posture of your heart will determine the precedence of your life because everything flows from our heart. Every belief, every decision, every thought, every action flows from the state that our heart is in. And that's why it's so prevalent that we keep our heart tender, that we keep our heart moldable, that we keep our heart given to the Father, humble before him, because the reality is that our heart is either given to him or it's not. It's moldable or it's not. It's surrendered or it's not. We can't give a half-given heart. A half-given heart is no heart given at all. We're either yielded or we're not. We're either surrendered or we're not. And I've been in seasons of life where I can admit I was half in, but that was no given heart. That we can't be half yielded to his way. We can't be half surrendered. It's either all of our heart or none of our heart. And through the life of King Saul and David, we just, we see a really clear picture of like, what does a surrendered heart look like? And what does a um, broken, what does an, a resistant, what does an arrogant heart look like? And we see the effects that come with it. And so being that God said, hey, the one thing that I'm seeking after is that he's after my heart. What does this heart look like? What does a heart after God actually look like? He says that David has it. The first thing that we see through the life of King Saul and King David is that a heart after God is given to correction. A heart after God is given to correction. We see this very clear contrast of the, po- the posture of their hearts that when they are confronted with their sin, what is their response? Because the reality is that neither Saul nor David was a perfect man but they were two flawed men who had a response that was drastically different when confronted with their sin, when confronted with their humanity. When God was asking, can you, can you accept my discipline as much as you accept my favor? Can you accept my molding as, as much as you accept my provision in your life? Can you acknowledge, can you see, can you accept my hand that deals out discipline as much as my heart that's poured out favor over your life? Can you accept both? Can you accept the good moments where you feel, oh, the Lord is so good in my life? And can you accept the moments when he's saying, this area needs work, this area needs correction because I love you, because I love you. And being imperfect men as they were, The truth is that Saul and David both experience what it is to be human. They both experience disappointment. They they both experience pain. They both experience sin done to them and sin that they committed. They both knew what it was to be human, but the difference was their response to what it was to be human. One said, this is what it is to be human, and I'm withholding my heart. The other said, this is what it is to be human, God. Would you take all of my heart, and would you mold me? Would you shape me? 
because they knew what it was to experience disappointment, rejection, pain, sin. But the experience of being human is the same, yet the difference is their response. It's their givenness. And we see one way of response through the life of King Saul when he was corrected in 1 Samuel 15. He says, One day Samuel said to Saul, It was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go, Saul is speaking this to Saul. He says, now go and completely destroy the entire Amalite nation, men, women, children, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys alike. So Saul mobilized his army. There were 200,000 soldiers from Israel and 10,000 men from Judah. Then Saul and his men went to the town of the Amalekites and lay in wait for in the valley. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Hevea all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agog, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared King Agog's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats the cattle, the fattened calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made you king, for he has not been loyal to me, and he has refused to obey my command. And Samuel, Samuel, not Saul. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him Saul went to the town of Carmel and set up a monument to himself. Then he went to Gilgal. It's very humorous. When Samuel finally found Saul, Saul greeted him and said, may the Lord bless you. I have carried out all the Lord's command. Then what is the bleeding of sheep and goats and lowering of cattle that I hear, Samuel demanded. He's like, I, I carried out the Lord's command, but he's like, I literally can hear behind you that you did not carry out the Lord's command. Like, I literally hear the evidence of your sin behind you. Then what is the bleeding of sheep and goats and cattle that I hear? It's true that the army spared the sheep and goats and cattle, Saul admitted, but they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We've destroyed everything else. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, listen to what the Lord God told me last night. And Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribe of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought brought back King Agog, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord. He has every excuse ready. He wasn't obedient, but he's like, hey, there was good reason for my thought process. There was good reason for me not doing what the Lord asked. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifice or your obedience to his voice? Your obedience to his voice. 
He says, listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than the offering of fat and rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. Saul is literally incapable of accepting correction. He's incapable of admitting his sin. He's incapable of admitting where he's fallen short and yet very capable of excuses, very capable of reassuring the reason for his sin and pushing away his responsibility as king and instead putting it on the men that he's called to lead. He said that they wanted to bring these back. He's so propped up by his pride that when Samuel confronts Saul, he makes every excuse. Though Saul was told clearly what God wanted, he can't own up. And God says that he is done with him at this point. He's done with him. And in this act of disobedience, he hardens his heart. He hardens his heart. He does not give his heart to correction that comes from a loving God, but he allows a root of bitterness to spring up in him. While on the other hand, we see David's life and his response to correction. David was not a perfect man. He did sin. He did fall short. He did, um, he did make mistakes, and his sin does carry with it consequences. But when the prophet Nathan comes to David and he you know, claims, hey, you've sinned, and he addresses it, this is what he says. He addresses it, and then he says, then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. His immediate response is, yes, I have sinned. Yes, I I have made this mistake. And in Psalms 51, he says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. It's just, for I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb." teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sin and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. And we see here where David is repentant when confronted with his sin. He's remorseful when when confronted with his faults. He understands that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. David certainly made devastating decisions, and yet God called him a man after his own heart. He didn't hide or deny when he was corrected, but he confessed and submitted. Not only is a heart that's given to God given to correction, but a heart that's after God is given to trust. It's given to trust. 
the trust in God's timing over life and trust in God's character over our life, his nature, who he says that he is. The truth is that when we don't trust God, we can start striving after things that are not ours to claim. When we don't trust his time and when we don't trust his way, when we don't trust his provision, we can start feeling like it's our job to make our own way. It's our job to find the thing we're in need of. It's our job to claim that thing. And God has said, no, I have provision over your life. Will you trust my nature? Will you trust my faithfulness? Will you trust my sovereignty? Or will you go your own way claiming what is not yours to claim, striving for things that are outside of my hand? Striving for things that I have not yet given you. And we see in King Saul's life that he has a threatened heart. That other people's success, that other people's righteousness are counted against his own. That he lacks when other people have. When, when God's provision is on someone else's life, he lacks. This is his mindset. This is the posture of his heart. One that is not resting in what God has provided what God has given, what God has supplied, but he's tormented by the peace of another, by what God has given another. Even though God had anointed Saul as king, he had chosen him, he had anointed him as king, but that wasn't enough in his inability to own his sin, to own, to have responsibility, disqualified himself. Disqualified himself. And now he's weary of anyone who will take his place. He's weary. It says in one of the scriptures I was reading through the um, first Samuel and second Samuel, it said multiple times that King Saul would recruit any young man of talent and gifting. He wanted them on his side, under his rule, under his reign. He didn't want them to get, you know, too full of what they could do or their ability. So he would recruit them into his army because he is so weary of anyone taking his place, even though God anointed him. God set him there. God put him in that position, and yet his heart is threatened. First Samuel 18 says, we read, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michael loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him, and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life, and he grows weary <laughs> trying to hunt down and kill David. I mean, it goes on and on of him trying to kill David, whereas David trusted the Lord's promise to him, where he was eager to please God in the waiting, that even after Saul had already been denied as king and David was anointed, that for years he waited in hiddenness. He waited in patience, knowing that he would not threaten the Lord's anointed one. He would not try to rush the timing of God or supersede the timing of God, but he would wait patiently because he trusted God's promise. He trusted the will of God in his life greater than his own. He was eager to please God in the waiting, in the waiting. He knew that God had anointed him to be the next king, and yet he waits serving the one who was aiming to steal his life, serving the very one who was threatening his life. Um, David waited. His heart doesn't aim or strive to take what isn't his, but he trusts that all that God has for him will be. That, that all that God has intended for his life will be that he doesn't have to strive for anything. 
He doesn't allow the broken experiences of life to take his tender heart. He doesn't grow suspicious of God's promise and of God's character. And yet that's so often I think what can happen where we aren't seeing the promise of God fulfilled in our life yet, or we're not seeing the outcomes that we desire. And so we don't just stop trusting people, but we actually start becoming suspicious of God. We start becoming suspicious of his nature, of his character, of his faithfulness. And if we're not careful, we can get in this place where we're not suspicious of the people who have hurt us, but we're suspicious of God. Like, God, I'm not sure that I can trust you. I'm not sure that I can trust your nature. I'm, I'm not sure. And so we, like we talked about last week, we start to withdraw. We start to withhold. Rather than living from this sure place of, God, I assume that you are holy. God, I assume that you are right. God, I assume that you are just. I assume that you are fair. I assume that you are good. I assume these things because they are true. I assume these things, and you are the keeper of my heart, a heart that won't assume my own conclusion or my own narrative or my own presumptions, but assumes and knows the best of God's nature, knows the best of his character, a heart that rests in the knowing that God is holy, therefore he cannot sin against us. He cannot sin against us because he is a holy and righteous God, therefore we can trust his nature. We can trust his faithfulness. We can trust his goodness and say, therefore, God, here is my heart. Do with it what you may. Do with my life what you may. What I cannot, what other humans cannot, Lord, my heart is given to you. And when something starts to threaten our heart, where we're questioning the character of God, we're questioning the nature of God, let us always return to the keeper of our heart, to the one who is the only one worthy of holding our heart. Let us be whatever you call good. Let us be whatever you call beautiful. Let us be whatever you call lovely, God. You hold our heart. You hold our heart and we give it to the place that is trustworthy when he corrects, when he confronts, when he molds and shapes our life. The third thing we see through their lives is that a heart after God is given to obedience. A heart after God is given to correction and a heart after God is given to trust and a heart after God is given to obedience. Can you be obedient to my direction? Can you be obedient to my guiding? Can you be obedient when it doesn't make sense? A heart that is trustworthy with the things God has instructed us with. I don't know about you, but I want to be a heart that the Father can trust with whatever he asks of me. I want to be a heart that no matter what I feel on the outside, that we're faithful with what God asks of us that he knows this is my servant I can trust. This is a heart I can trust with obedience to whatever I'm asking. And Saul thought that his way was better than God's. Saul was told way back in the beginning of his reign that we talked about to not spare any of the Amalekites. And yet he spared the best of what they had for himself. And rather than take responsibility for these things, he did, he did not deal with these things. He used the people that he was called to lead as an excuse. 
And Saul's disobedience had further reaching consequences than I think he could have ever imagined. We read this in 2 Samuel. After the death of Saul, after the death of Saul, David returned from his victory over the Amalekites. David is now here fighting a people that Saul was called to destroy. David returned from his victory over the Amalekites and spent two days in Ziglag. And on the third day, a man arrived from Saul's army camp. He had torn his clothes and put dirt on his head to show that he was in mourning. He fell to the ground before David in deep respect. Where have you come from? David asked. I escaped from the Israelite camp, the man replied. What happened, David demanded. Tell me how the battle went. The man replied, our entire army fled from the battle. Many of the men are dead and Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. How do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? David demanded of this young man. And the man answered, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the enemy chariots and charioteers closing in on him. And when he turned and saw me, he cried out for me to come to him. How can I help? I asked him. He responded, who are you? He says, I am an Amalekite. I am an Amalekite. Then he begged me, come over here and put me out of my misery, my misery, for I am in terrible pain and want to die. So I killed him, the Amalekite said. For I knew he couldn't live, then I took his crown and his armband and I brought them here for you, my Lord. And in this moment, David is not pleased with this action. He's grieved over the death of Saul. He's grieved over the death of Saul. And the irony of Saul's death is that ultimately this very man who killed and came to deliver the news of Saul's death was the very nation of people that God had committed, that God had commanded Saul to kill. He was an Amalekite. He was the group of people that God had commanded Saul to take out, and yet he's the one who's taking Saul out. If Saul had been obedient to the Lord's instruction, this Amalekite could have never killed him. He says, I am an Amalekite, the same group of people that God told Saul to wipe out. And the reality of this is that the issues of the heart that we don't deal with always come back to deal with us. The issues of the heart that we do not observe, that we do not give to the Father, that we do not surrender to the Father, always have a way of finding their way out. The very man who killed Saul was from the people group that Saul was called to kill. And because of the issues in Saul's heart, he did not take out the thing that God commanded him and that thing came and took him out. And it's the same thing with the issues of our heart. If we don't say, God, here's the hidden places of my life. Here's the broken places. Here's the places that I don't want anyone to acknowledge or see. Those things always have a way of finding their way out. And God wants to heal those places. God wants to cover those places. God wants to do a deep healing in those places. And I don't know who that's for this morning, but whatever it is, God wants to heal that thing in your heart. God doesn't want you to remain hidden. God doesn't want you to live out of shame. God wants to heal the inner places of your heart. He wants to heal them. And we see this in the life of David, that he's not a perfect man, but his heart is yielded to the Father. 
His heart is given to the Lord's will. He's always inquiring of God's way. A heart given to obedience will be tethered to the peace that comes from knowing you're in right standing with God. A heart that is tethered to peace with God is a heart that has been obedient to God, that covers your life, that secures your life, that blesses your life because you've been obedient to the Father. And the last thing we see through the life of Saul and King David is that a heart after God is given to awe of God. A heart after God is given to awe of God, the wonder of God, the mystery of God, the pleasure of knowing God. And when we look through David's life, though he wasn't perfect, we see a heart that is in awe of God. We see a heart that is amazed by the faithfulness of God. We see a heart that is amazed by who God is. In 2 Samuel, it says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty. Do you deal with everyone this way? Lord, what more can I say about you? You know your servant, you know what your servant is really like. Because of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known to your servant. How great are you, O Lord God? There is no one like you. We have never seen or even heard of another God who's like you. What other nation on earth is like your people, Israel? What other nation, O God, have you redeemed from slavery to be your own people? You have made a great name for yourself when you redeemed your people from Egypt. You performed awesome miracles and drove out the nations and gods that stood in their way. You made Israel your own people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. I just love that he says, like, who else is like you? Who else is like you, God? And I don't know about you, but I want that to always be the position of my heart that's like, God, who else is like you? Who else is so kind? Who else is so wonderful? Who else brings peace? Who else brings joy beyond comparison? What other name is like your name? No one. No one is like your name. A heart that is after God's is a heart that is in awe of him. Is a heart that is in awe of him. I was listening to this song this week where they just say, God, I I don't want to grow familiar. Would you help my heart stay soft and tender? Like, I want that to be my life. I don't know about you, but I want my heart to be tender before God. Because none of us are above sin. None of us are greater than Saul. None of us are above human nature. And so I want a heart that is that is open to the Lord's correction. Because I know that when he corrects me, it's because he loves me. I want a heart that's given to obedience. I want a heart that's given to trusting God. I want a heart that's given to awe of God because in that place, even in our humanity, we will stay tethered to the heart of God. I want a heart that's given to the Father, a heart that's given to correction that leads to repentance. Not that leads to shame, but that leads to repentance, a heart that's given to trust and obedience and awe. 
And so just my prayer today is that God would mark our hearts with givenness to his hand. That God would mark our lives with a surrender to him. We don't want to become unyielding. We don't want to become stagnant. We don't want to become unmoved by his presence by his kindness, by his correction. We want to stay on the altar before God in awe of who he is, in awe of his nature, in awe of his kindness, in awe of the fact that we don't deserve his sacrifice and yet he's freely given it. And I just love the fact that we don't have to leave with heaviness today, but we can leave with hope knowing that in all of our humanity, We have a God that lives inside of us. We have the Holy Spirit who dwells with us and corrects us day by day, who guides us day by day, who leads us to the path of righteousness that we don't have to do it on our own, that we don't have to be perfect on our own, that we don't have to sacrifice, that we don't have to satisfy, but the perfect sacrifice has already done that. And that you and I, we have God, the Holy Spirit, living inside of us that day by day is correcting our heart, is molding our heart, is shaping our heart to want God, to love God, to need God. And we can live joyfully knowing that day by day, He's making us more like His Son. Day by day, He's forming us into the image of Christ so we don't have to feel overwhelmed by our humanity. We don't have to feel overwhelmed by our inability to please God, but we can rest in the knowing that the Holy Spirit guides us day after day, moment after moment, teaching us how to be, teaching us how to love Him, teaching us how to serve Him. Would you stand with me this morning as we pray?